listening to the Renegade Economist, investigating monopoly profits, great corruption, and the policy solutions demanded. Geeky but essential, the tools to the fairest and most efficient economic system awaited. With your host, Carl Fitzgerald. Welcome, ladies and gents, to the Renegade Economist 3CR Radiothon. I won't hassle you too much, but I would love to keep these commons alive and well. So if you can donate to 3CR, phone in 9419 8377. That's 9419 8377. Or the website, 3cr.org.au, and it will take you through the donate button to the Our Community website where you select Renegade Economist as uh, the show you want to donate to. It's been great receiving a few text messages from listeners concerned that uh, I may well have missed the Radiothon because this show falls outside of the uh, exact Radiothon dates, but rest assured, the good people of 3CR will accept money any time of the night or day just like you or I. And imagine if you could get money in your sleep. Well, that's what we're talking about here. We're revealing this method of obtaining unearned gains at society's expense. And by recognising that, looking at the root cause of the worldwide inequitable distribution of wealth. And it starts from where you're standing, right underneath you. The value of location, location is an unnatural advantage for property owners to hold over anyone trying to run a business or earn a wage. But before we delve back into today's primary focus on the role of land at its most fundamental level, uh, the first two episodes in uh, this Renegade Economist's pod course covered uh, property rights and how they tilt the playing field for generations while we really need to grasp the importance of property rights then we moved on to justice before liberty a lot of uh, reading in that episode of passionate reading talking about uh, again the need to get to the root cause before any chance of genuine freedom can be delivered. So today we delve into the land question. And John Mohawk in his essay, The Problem of the Modern World, states, when land became a commodity and lost its status as provider and sustainer of life, Western civilization began its history of subjugation and exploitation of the earth and earth-based cultures. For nearly five centuries, people have been coerced from their land holdings. The problem in the English-speaking world has its roots in the 16th century. So let's go back to the 1600s, where over several hundred years, the enclosures of the commons took hold in Merry England. There were 4,000 private acts of enclosure covering some 7 million acres. Probably the same sized area was enclosed without application to Parliament. About two thirds of this were open fields belonging to cottages, and one third involved commons such as woodland and heath. 
In the census of 1086, more than half the arable land belonged to the villagers. By 1876, only 2,225 people owned half the agricultural land in England and Wales. And that 0.6 of 1% of the population owned 98.5% of the land. As newer agricultural methods and technologies were applied, landowners could raise the rents of their lands by phenomenal amounts. As the cash economy developed, the rent money accumulated in the hands of the landholders and the plight of the people worsened. To survive, they sometimes were forced to borrow money from the landholders at high rates of interest. And others stole loaves of bread or even handkerchiefs and were sent to Australia as convicts, where the family oral history having been passed down led to many emancipists, many free settlers recognising that we cannot allow the aristocrats to have so much power over so many people. Now, uh, this English story of the enclosures has been uh, brought to the fore in recent weeks with an incredible report by George Monbiot and five other leading land reformers such as Laurie McFarlane, who's been on the show before. It's called A Land for the Many. And there's so many good quotes in there. Probably didn't go quite into the detail I, I wanted, but it is a fantastic uh, eye-opener to the fundamental needs to get onto this land reform story. And in it they write that land accounts for 51% of the UK's net worth compared to 26% in Germany and how land values have increased from 1 trillion in 1995 to 5 trillion today. If I flick across to the Australian, um, the Australian example, in 1995, national land values were worth $756 billion. Today, my friends, they're worth $5.9 trillion. So land prices have grown at a faster rate here than in the UK. But hey, when we write press releases on this, uh, sending it out when the uh, Australian National Accounts are released, despite the fact that land profits are some 15 times greater than banking profits, no one wants to discuss it. No one wants to report on it. So in a way, there's so much complexity in society, we can't see the forest for the trees. Could we really well say that uh, we can't see the land for the houses? And just uh, in the last week or so, uh, a group funded out of Monash University called Climate Works, uh, doing incredible work, have uh, released a uh, major website that analyzes land use. You'll find it in the show notes. But in it, uh, they reveal, using uh, some fantastic uh, geospatial analysis, that only 0.2% of Australia's land is used in the urban context. 45% of our land is used for grazing over native vegetation, i.e. those desert lands. 4% for cropland and horticulture. 23% for conservation. 9% uh, for grazing, 
on modified pastures, basically typical farms. So agriculture covers over half our land and directly employs around 340,000 people across about 86,000 farms. But hey, that's only 3% of national GDP. And over half of that gets exported around the world. I was interested to see how they defined land ownership uh, with crown land constituting 24% of Australia's land mass, freehold land 28%, whereas leasehold was an incredible 47.5%. A lot of those pastoral leases way into the outback. But despite the size of those land ownerships out in those pastoral areas, the vast majority of the capital gains I think it was some 86% I calculated a few years uh, of the increased locational value of land went to landholders in the cities of Melbourne and Sydney. So barely anything left for the rest of the nation. And this is what we're talking about, this uh, method of obtaining unearned gains at society's expense, driving the wealth gap. It comes back to the land question and who owns the prime locations? Is that a property right that was divined by the creator upon that particular landholder? Or was it something where we were all born as equals onto this earth? These are the deeper philosophical questions we must get to where Voltaire wrote so eloquently about the fruits of the earth belonging to all. They are some of the big issues we need to address. But what was the response to this Land for the Many report? Well, George Monbiot sent out a number of tweets um, talking about how the billionaire press has united as one to take out this report. And here's another tweet. And three weeks later, and perhaps 50 furious articles after Land for the Many was published, not a single journalist from any of these newspapers has contacted us. Nor has any BBC program or any mainstream broadcaster except LBC and Talk Radio invited us to talk about it. That's phenomenal. Where in the UK, we constantly hear statistics like the top 1% owning over half of uh, English land. Constantly hear of Russian oligarchs owning huge mansions as uh, investment strategies that are left vacant as ghost mansions for months on end. Don't be frustrated. Why shouldn't I be? What's wrong? Nothing. Why do they leave it vacant? Well, because land is unique in that its supply is fixed. Therefore, the battle for location, location delivers great rewards to those who control the property rights. So with the ability to buy and sell real estate from one's hammock while sitting overlooking a beach in uh, your favorite tax haven, uh, that sort of ability to buy and sell real estate, which is barely taxed, 
whilst also hiding your income from your productive work, whether that be a company you own, whether that be some sort of family trust arrangement you've orchestrated to minimise on your taxes. Well, that really is stealing from society, isn't it? In both directions, because it's our taxes that funds the infrastructure that makes those locations ever more valuable. It's really a form of secret taxation the wealthy charge the poor. And so as credit increases, as population increases, the battle for location continues and the returns to land in prime locations outstrip what those in small business can earn. And a lot of this is because of what happened in the late 1880s at Prosper Australia where strong proponents of uh, the teachings of Henry George who released his seminal work Progress and Poverty in 1879 blew the lid on the land story and helped the working classes understand how the aristocrats were earning so much so easily. John Stuart Mill and Adam Smith, David Ricardo, that all built up pieces of the jigsaw puzzle, but no one had taken it to its logical extent to say that, look, there's enough value from this rising uh, interest in location, the rising value of minerals, rising value of forests, all of these things that unless we tax them to some extent, the profiteering behind that is going to drive huge disparities through society and motivate these insiders to keep pillaging the earth. And George built on those classical thinkers to say that it was applied labour onto land that produced capital. And without land, essentially, uh, nobody can work. That's why it's always ironic when we have economic corrections and uh, we quantify the 60,000, 80,000 vacant properties as unemployment is increasing and people are led to believe they can't do anything productive for society. If only those land prices were cheaper, there wouldn't be such a boom-bust cycle. If only the tax system was less complex there'd be more small business competing for labour rather than paying high rents through the nose. And uh, one of uh, our UK colleagues shared an email debate recently with a seasoned economist uh, with uh, a history in economic modelling and uh, she was reminding him that land was a factor of production and... When I did my economics degree, there was a story that output was a product of labour plus capital. But three years into my degree, they said, sorry, output doesn't equal labour plus capital, and we don't know why. When I caught up with uh, my professor of economics, John Freeban, a few years ago on this show, I asked him that question, and he said, well, Carl, the thing that's missing, you well know, is the land story that represents location, minerals, water, forestry, the earth. That's the missing piece of the puzzle. Well, this well-credentialed economist responded to that 
line of thinking by saying, I think that's wrong and extremely misleading. Capital isn't simply the product of labor applied to land because there are a number of types of capital that have little or nothing to do with land. In fact, the phrase labor applied to land doesn't really make any sense except in an agrarian economy. It's a pre-industrial concept. And she said, uh, you can't do any economic analysis without a definition of land. He responded, I'm not going to waste my time with a pre-industrial definition of factors of production. Absolutely farcical. Most capital has nothing to do with land whatsoever. This is it for me. I won't be taking any part in these discussions anymore. This was a guy who ran a business, had something to do with the word land, (laughs) but he couldn't see through the trees to the land, couldn't see how even these platform monoliths of Facebook, Amazon and whatnot all require land for their data centres, all require land for their satellites to orbit. That's all part of the definition of land. So economists are wearing blinkers and it's a real concern because after George revealed this whole story, 1879, by 1886, the American Economic Association was being established. And they, over the next 10, 20 years, figured out a way to remove the land story from analysis so that the commons would never be a source of sovereignty for the people so that the incredible unearned incomes that landholders enjoy just from holding a piece of paper. They don't have to set foot in the suburb. They don't have to turn up to work. They don't have to worry about being late. None of that stuff. They can just sit on their hammock and uh, ask for a rental increase each and every year. And when that's not enough, they sell after every seven or eight years and make uh, huge capital gains. When that is backed up by this new post-manufacturing economic model of big immigration, big infrastructure leading to big land and housing price debts, it's an ugly, ugly scenario for the everyday person. So whilst some economists are still scratching their heads thinking that land is a pre-industrial issue, we remember how Land values have increased from $755 billion to nearly $6 trillion over the last 24 years. I just have to uh, bring back to your attention this incredible graph that we produce at Prosper Australia through our friends at the Land Values Research Group. And it talks about the classical components of GDP. And uh, in what it basically does is looks at land, labour and capital and taxation and asks what percentage do each of those factors take from our national output, our GDP. And in 1906, labour and capital were sharing some 94% of the output. But over time, that slowly reduced as land prices have etched upwards and upwards so that today, after taxes and land rents are paid, there's barely 50.5% of GDP left for the productive sector to argue over. And 
the beauty of what happened during neoclassical economics is they, and, and w- which was facilitated by Marxism was that that became the main show was labor battling capital for ever more of the share without a recognition that it's actually the land rent that's increasing alongside of a tax system that's chasing its tail. And if only we could switch the tax system away from the productive sector and place it on the land sector, the monopoly rent sector, we could reopen some 24% of GDP back to labour and capital. So that is the power of this story. We can discuss it with the far right, with the far left, how to create a lower tax society that uses the most efficient tax system for the far right, or on the left, true cost economics, affordable housing, more public transport. So if you're really going to dig into this land story, you have to understand what we call the law of rent. And the law of rent looks at the ability of more productive land and the productive bounty that enables over more marginal land that doesn't have the same advantages. goes on to show how, imagine you landing on an island. Well, the first person there, they get to keep everything they make. They get to keep all their wages. But the second comer, he's now charged rent by uh, the first land claimant there. And then the third person comes, and of course the rent keeps increasing. And by the time the fourth person's there, all land is used. So uh, rents keep increasing, and uh, the first comer is the lucky one who gets to just sit back and enjoy these rents. And so the, the story is that once all the free land is taken up, there's an, an advantage of those landholders over anyone else. And so the difference between the most arable piece of land and the most marginal piece of land is seen as a surplus, an economic rent that could be taxed on behalf of those four uh, people on the island to share equally, to stop the wars. Uh, And basically it's saying that uh, wages are determined on that most marginal piece of land, on the subsistent land. So, yeah, it's quite a turnaround when you, when you do recognise that it is our ability to look after ourselves on marginal land that makes all the difference. 3CR, radio that's independent, progressive and making a difference. You know, I, I was doing some research as well in Cape Town in South Africa uh, and I was reading that book, uh, Progress and Poverty. This is the magnum opus from uh, Henry George. And I was with a San activist. San act- the, the San are a people, if you've seen the movie, The Gods Must Be Crazy, they drop a Coke bottle out of the sky, and none of the San have ever seen a Coke bottle before. And so they're, they're confused by the whole, by the whole incident. Uh, they have a sort of a clicking... Um, language, but anyways, I was with this uh, with this activist, and we were, you know, driving in his truck, and I was reading Progress and Poverty, and I was looking out over these vast swaths of land that, you know, just growing up, I thought that 
people in poverty were in poverty because they were living in, you know, very desolate areas, you know, no, not enough water, food, famine, AIDS, the, these kind of issues. But what I saw were just vast swaths of land between Cape Town and Johannesburg that were very fertile. So I asked, you know, who, who owns these? And his reply was, you know, people in uh, Europe, the United States. I came to find out later that one of the main land grabbers in the region is uh, American Ivy League universities. So uh, Yale, Vanderbilt, Harvard, these places of higher learning that supposedly, you know, and, and I think their intention is to, to do what's good in the world, but, you know, who, like, as that's filtered through board structures and, and whatnot, it, it, it's obviously not doing a lot of good. And, you know, at the same time, while I saw these vast swaths of land that just weren't being used, I saw people grazing their cattle in the margin between the asphalt and the fence itself. And at that moment, I was reading about that classical economist, David Ricardo, and his theories about, you know, what's, what causes the sort of the general, if you can say that, at the general level of wages in a society? Like, why do, why do people um, become more employed and have more excess income? And, you know, what reduces that? And he said, basically, like, if there's a lot of good land that people can go to without paying rent, then landlords on better grades of land can't, can't charge them uh, a higher price. And so what they keep afterwards is their, is their wages. The law of rent. Yes. Yeah. So that's one of the, the defining elements of Georgism is showing how uh, the last remnants of freedom are being able to, uh, to, to make productive some of these marginal sites that are that, as you explain, in between the basically the curbside uh, land between the fence and the road, uh, that's somewhere where people can actually keep all of their wages. And you, sir, simple farmer who has prospered. The town looks to me as friend and counsel, and landlord, and banker. Can we proceed? Thank you. I say the future is ours! What's wrong? Nothing. If you can count! There's this middle-class, privileged elite in most countries who have a pretty good idea of what's going on in the world, but they will not talk. But they will not talk. But they will not talk. So Henry George famously summed up this natural advantage of landholders by saying, the equal right of all men to the use of land is as clear as their equal right to breathe the air. It is a fact proclaimed by the fact of their existence. Now, we've just talked about economic rents there, but of course, under the neoclassical system, they try very hard to dismiss this difference between the first comer's land and the fourth owner's land and the ability to charge rents on that difference. And in a book called New Ideas from Dead Economists, An Introduction to Modern Economic Thought, Todd Buckholtz says, the percentage of property rent in the economy has dropped to well under 1% today. Some of you may remember my report back in 2012 called The Total Resource Rents of Australia, which quantified Australia's land and natural monopolies at 23.6% of GDP. 
So there's a lot here to look into. I hope that uh, you can look through the show notes that you'll find on prosper.org.au under the uh, tag of podcourse, uh, that uh, this is uh, worthy of your time. We really need more people to look into these deep-seated uh, issues and uh, I look forward next month to bringing you the next instalment in uh, the detailed learnings to uh, this classical line of thinking where we hope we can share the earth so all may prosper. So if you can donate to 3CR, phone in 9419 That's 9419 or the website 3cr.org.au and it will take you through the donate button to the Our Community website where you select Renegade Economists as uh, the show you want to donate to.